This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Triple R. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've uh, got an hour now to give you some science. In the studio with me is Dr. Lyndon. How are you going? Well, thank you. Fill- for filling in for Dr. Ailey, who's had a, you know, she's been producing. Exactly. Not yep. just scientific papers. <laughs> <laughs> so she's out. You're a climatologist, so we figured we need to keep that part of the show going strong. Thanks for having me. I've got big shoes to fill, but I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she's listening. And Dr. Lauren, Lauren number two. Yes, good morning, Dr. Shane. Oh, American Lauren? Yeah. Oh, no, what, what do we call, yeah, anyway, we just, everyone knows you guys sound different, so. Yes, exactly. It's, it's clear, yeah. And speaking of Americans, Dr. Ray. Uh, Dr. Shane, I just realized, wow, two American accents on uh, one program. Yeah, it's you. like TV. <laughs> like Australian TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you could say that. Now, folks, we have, uh, we have some news for you today. And then we've got a couple of really cool guests coming into the studio. We're going to start off with the news, though. So, uh, Dr. Lauren, why don't we start with you? Oh, I was going to throw the Dr. Yeah. Lena, but, you know, <laughs> so first day in as a host, and I thought it might be a bit cruel, so we'll start with you. Yeah, no worries. So um, I've got a question for you guys. What do cows and mathematics have in common? Anything you can things? approximate the shape of a cow as a sphere to make the math simpler. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> old, I was, old engineering I, trick. I, I was going to use a swear word that started with B and ended with T, but I won't. Oh. <laughs> no. All right, well, I will, uh... Sorry to all the mathematicians out there and hello to the cows. So um, there was a study actually it published this week uh, looking at using mathematics to model herd behavior in cows. And so um, researchers recognize that what appears to be like a randomly dispersed herd peacefully eating grass, you know, when you drive by um, these pastures, is actually a complex system of individuals in a group facing um, different different tensions. So they used um, complex systems, which try aims to understand um, not just the isolated components of any sort of given system, but also looking at how the individual components interact to produce the uh, overall group behavior. So this study specifically looked at cows grazing in a herd. And so um, an individual cow sort of standardly performs three major activities during the day. They have nice lives. They uh, A, eat, and then stand while they digest, and then uh, lie down to rest. So, um, and these cows also have to move and eat in their herds to protect themselves from a predator. And so the problem that they identified um, is that cows actually eat at different speeds and the herd can move on before the slower ones have finished eating. Hmm. Uh, and so the slower cows then face a difficult choice. They can either um, keep eating in a smaller, less safe group, or they can move along with a bigger group, but then risk being hungry. So um, tough, tough choice there. And so the, the conflict between feeding and keeping up with, a, with the group becomes too large. And so it can actually be advantageous for animals to split into smaller subgroups that sort of have similar you know, nutritional needs. And so researchers um, incorporated a cost function into this mathematical model to help explain these different behaviors of sort of how and when cows would uh, choose to either be eat quickly or eat more slowly. And so they actually, originally they kind of, their hypothesis was that, was that there'd be two groups of cows, as I mentioned, the fast cows and the slow cows. Um, 
but they actually found that there were some cows that also sort of oscillated between the groups. So they moved back and forth between um, the two groups. And um, they found that the larger size animal group had the, the faster rhythm and the smaller one had a slower, the smaller group had a slower rhythm. And so in this context, a cow might find itself in one group and after some time, that group is eating too fast for them. So then they sort of go back with the, with the slower group, but that one eventually becomes too slow. And so again, this dilemma comes up when they're moving between the two groups, the cows are actually exposing themselves to um, the dangers of pred- predators, which um, causes tension between the cows' need to eat, um, but also the cows' need to be safe when they're eating. And so they sort of, um, yeah, so they developed this model. And then the future work for this is really that this existing model and cost function could be used as a basis for studying other herd animals' behaviors or even yeah. potentially human behaviors. Yeah, because humans are like that. Yeah. It's just this fascinating that you can do that on a cow. So it's a largely domesticated animal. Mm. But still has all these herd dynamics. Cause, you know, yeah. I, I may not look at cow herds quite the same way again. I'll be looking for the ones mm. jumping between the two groups. But, <laughs> but that's fascinating because it's a mostly domesticated animal, but still has herd dynamics. I was going to say the, yeah. the overachievers. <laughs> they start off in the slow eating group, but they well, work I hard. I don't know <laughs> if it's, it's like socially they move in two circles, but, yeah. um. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't, when you drive by, you wouldn't sort of be able to, to see it. They all look the same and they yeah, all kind yeah. of just seem to be sitting. Like I've, I don't think I've ever really seen cows even, even moving. Well, next like, time I drive past and I see one group, Group, and then another group, I'm going to look at one of those groups and go, yeah, you're looking a bit sad. Yeah. <laughs> bit you look like are, they, are they hungry or unsafe? <laughs> yeah. yeah you look a bit unsafe. So, you know, you see some cows sitting up and some cows lying down. Is that kind of a rotation system that they've got within those different groups as well, do you think? Like oh. a roster? A lie down? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't know. It's like a union. You yeah, know, exactly. The, a group of them join the union. They decide, well, we're going to eat at this speed. Yeah. And, and the rest of you can just suck it up or go over there. Go over there and get eaten. Go there and get eaten, that's right. All righty. Dr. Linden, what do you got for us? Well, unfortunately, I'm a climatologist, so I thought I would uh, bring the mood down a little bit with some depressing climate change news that I read this week in Mm -hmm. Nature Climate Change. Is there any non-depressing climate change news at the moment? If and when I find it, I will let you know. (laughs) And I did look this week because I didn't want to bring in a downer, but I just couldn't find anything. So instead, I've got something a bit depressing. But maybe relevant, as you said before, just off air, talking about the heat waves that they've been experiencing mm. up in the Northern Hemisphere lately. A recent paper has come out in Nature Climate Change that has kind of done a big review of all of the different papers. They've read about 900 different studies of a heat wave and deadly heat wave events that have happened across the world uh, from 1980 to 2014. They read 911 papers and they looked at 780 events over 36 countries and they tried to figure out the kind of weather conditions that were associated with these events. They used the information from all the papers and climate data and they realised that, as you would probably expect, temperature and humidity are the two key things that contribute to whether a heat event is deadly for humans or not. Now, this doesn't include any kind of information about air conditioning or adaptation or anything like that. It's just, is the weather hot enough to kill a person? Yep. Okay? Because physiologically, it makes sense. We like to be at 37 degrees. If it's hotter than that, our bodies can't cool down. They get hotter. We're at risk of hyperthermia, not hypothermia. Mm-hmm. And with humidity, if it's really humid, then we can't sweat to cool down. And so then we're in a lot of trouble as well. So this study found that in the year 2000, about 30% of the world's population were exposed to at least 20 days a year of conditions like this, mm. which is, you know... It's pretty significant. That's pretty significant, mm. yeah. I mean, uh, they, a lot of the studies were focused in the mid-latitudes, so Europe and, and North America, and so maybe the tropics were underrepresented a little bit, but still, that's pretty significant. 
The next thing that they did, which you could probably guess, is that they looked at what might happen in the future. So mm-hmm. they looked at climate models uh, with three different possible outcomes. A, we deal with climate change really quickly and reduce the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere. Sort of we kick along to about 550 parts per million. That's the, the middle kind of uh, future scenario or the scenario we're tracking on at the moment, which is we ramp up and we kind of uh, hit four degrees quite quickly sort of thing. By 2100, we've got about 750 parts per million in the atmosphere, Mm. which we're on about 400 now. And then they looked to see how these uh, events might change over time. And they found that even if we go to the lowest kind of future pathway, about 47% of the population will be exposed to these events more than 20 days of the year, Mm. which can be pretty scary. And and I suppose if, if, if you live in a, you know, a wealthy country you can hibernate in your home and Mm -hmm. continue contributing to the problem Mm. um, with your air conditioning but uh, you know for vast quantities of the globe and even in even in countries like australia where there are a lot of people you know living sort of rough on the streets and so forth i mean you can't survive those conditions exactly that's exactly right so the other thing that this study found was that it's the tropics where the increase is going to be greatest so Mm. if we continue to track on the highest pathway trajectory uh, by 2100 jakarta for example every single day will cross the threshold of being a deadly day. Every single wow. day of the year, isn't that full on? The temperature isn't expected to increase as much there, but because it's already really humid, a small mm. increase in temperature could really be devastating to people. And we just can't evolve quick enough, our bodies can't evolve quick enough to deal with this change in heat. And so this study is hoping that they can identify where events are going to increase more so they can focus adaptation strategies there. So I think below three metres... Underground, it drops to about 15 degrees, is that right? Yeah. As I recall. Do you remember the time machine? Yeah, and there was the group that lived underground, the, mm-hmm. the Morlocks? Morlocks? What something something like, that. like that. That's going to be us because it's going to be the only place where we can get cool. It's interesting, you know, in parts of the world where you, you, you won't be able to afford to air condition. And, you know, air conditioning is a very, very energy intensive yeah. process. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to have to start moving underground. It's the only place where it'll be cool enough. Mole people. The mole people. Mm. We're all going to become the mole. The entire planet is going to be a planet of mole people until we cool the place down. Oh, I thought this story was depressing enough already. It kind of <laughs> made it even more depressing. Yeah, sorry about that. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a big issue. It's a, yeah. it's a very big issue. Yeah. So. Dr. Ray? I, uh, I have some exciting news. Well, dear. I have a story about eggs. Uh, Folks, can I just preface this by saying there was a lot of email activity between members of the Einstein and GoGo team with that kind of humor. I, I was worried that I, was fr- I fried too hard, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> You peaked early. Hey, yeah, I know. It's because yeah. I got all scrambled. Anyway, um, <laughs> look, uh, uh, this is a, a really fascinating study by a biologist at Princeton University, Mary Stoddard, who has always been fascinated with eggs and asked a simple question, why are birds' eggs shaped the way they are? Because birds' eggs are either elongated, they could mm-hmm. be spherical or, or elongated like an ellipsoid, and also they're pointy, which means they can have an asymmetry. And so a sandpiper's egg looks like a teardrop, but an owl's egg looks like a golf ball and a hummingbird's like a jelly bean. So why on earth are there these differences? And there's, there's, there's previous hypotheses that suggest it was some correlation between nest type, nest location, and the number in the clutch. So that's, that's, that's kind of been the anecdotal hypothesis out there. So they looked at 1400 different species of birds and they looked at over 50,000 eggs out of a Berkeley Museum's egg collection. Um, and, and they actually wrote a computer program working with uh, colleagues uh, at Harvard 
uh, and then developed a mathematical model. They wrote a computer program that picked out the eggs uh, length, width, and shape. They did, in fact, call the computer program the egg extractor. <laughs> um, and, and actually what they found is largely the shape of a bird's eggs depends on how much it flies. The species flies. Oh. And you go, oh, my gosh, why? And, and so then they, the, but they actually made a mathematical model to justify this. And here's some things I didn't know about egg shape. The egg shape is not given to the egg from the shell. The shell is incidental. It's the membrane between the shell and the egg itself that actually defines the shape of the egg. Hmm. And that's based on the pressure the chick pushes on the egg and the pressure that it deals with from external sides. And this membrane is actually what determines the shape. And so they, they modeled that membrane and basically uh, were able to basically on that mathematical model describing how the pressure is forced on the membrane. Uh, depending on the size of the chick and, and, and a couple different parameters, they were able, and the stiffness of the membrane, which was, would be the stiffness of, ultimately of the egg, were able to reproduce all the different egg shapes they observed. Wow. Uh, and so this is wild. They were able to, to actually really have a predictive mathematical model. And what they basically found this correlated to was they said flight. And what they did was is they took the ratio of a bird's wing length to its width. And they, they, so that's basically how good of a flyer it is. And they correlated egg shape to this, where pointier ones were for eggs that are, were up in the air more. And they think it had something to do with, you know, the, 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 the body skeleton has to be more streamlined and sleeker and a smaller pelvis versus birds that didn't spend nearly as much time in flight. For example, an owl, which does a lot of perching. Um, and it's just wild that you could come up with this correlation. I mean, even the museum, this is egg collecting, which isn't done anymore for obvious reasons because it's kind of bad. So this is 50,000 eggs preserved from the 19th and 20th century where people would collect the eggs, blow them out, and preserve them. So they were mining a collection that you couldn't even get in modern days to really understand why eggs are the way they are. And it was just... I couldn't believe they came up with this study. Mm. I mean, it, it was one thing to be able to model, hey, this is what the egg shape should be based on the, the membrane, but to actually correlate it with flight is just so, really impressive. So can I just hand out to any citizen scientist out there a free paper you can write right now, which is on the fact that lizards and snakes don't fly. Ooh. So based on this, they should all have the same shaped egg. Ooh. Go do it, people. Write it up. Send it in. <laughs> and it's what about well- speckles, Dr. Ray? Did they talk about... Egg speckles? Did no, that I, to yeah, that it? was. I was wondering about that. They didn't talk about coloration, yeah. but they did, in fact, bring up penguins. Well, penguins don't fly. They have pointier eggs. They're not spher- as spherical <gasps> because they fly in the water. Yes. They fly in the water. Yeah, of yeah, course. They, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I so wonder. You, could, what, you wonder about and, lizards? Well, and gators and stuff. Yeah, yeah how streamlined of, they are and yeah, how much they move to the water. Yeah. Frogs. And it's just emus? the beginning. Yeah. What about emus? They're the anomaly. Just forget emus. No, no one likes an emu. Does anyone really like an emu? Come on. Yeah. Like an emu? They're the laughing stock of the bird world. Oh, Let's face it, really. Other, other, birds, that. other birds, I've seen them swooping in and going, huh. What fun again until they peck out your eyes. Do you know what they're... Yeah, that's right. Look, I got, I got attacked by an emu as a child, and ever since then, uh. you know, emus are my mortal enemy. Now, I wanted to uh, quickly mention something... Uh, which I find fascinating and, and, and downright scary. I mean, you talk about climate change, but this stuff really scares the shit out of me. Coronal mass ejections from the sun. I mean, these things are potentially deadly to us, right? This is where the sun basically burps out a big bit of plasma and it flies out in extraordinary speeds. And if you are lucky enough for the earth to be in its way and they, they, you know, they're not overly sort of widely distributed in space. So, you know, they, they head out like a, a bit like a sneeze, in fact. And, you know, if they hit us, um, it can be game over. It can be pretty bad. Now, we get little bits and pieces of them here and there all the time, and they affect satellites and 
other things that we have up in space, and they can affect telecommunication systems on the ground, electronic systems on the ground. But one of the things that's very difficult to do, because remember, these things travel at sublight speeds. So, you know, you've got the, the speed of light, you know, we see these things, and then we we wait for a few days and they roll up. You know, so we've got a bit of advanced warning of these sorts of rejections. But predicting whether or not they will hit Earth has actually proven to be pretty difficult over the years. And there's a, uh, a researcher, Professor Matthew Owens from the University of Reading, who's been looking at why this is the case. And he's, he's come up with a very interesting um, explanation, and that is that typically when you hear about these coronal mass ejections, it's like one big blob of crap that is flying off into space and you you do the mathematics on it as though it's one single object. And what he's determined that actually with these coronal mass ejections, because they're in the solar wind and all other things going on, they're actually literally more like a sneeze. They're made up of many objects, all of which have slightly different trajectories and are affected in different ways. And so when you try and actually calculate what the overall direction of these things are, it's actually quite difficult. So this, this new work that he's been doing sort of shows that we may have to have a much more sophisticated look at coronal mass ejections if we're going to measure them and predict them uh, correctly. So, yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention quickly is a, a big thank you to one of our listeners last week. Um, I'm going to say it's a guy named Guy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always confusing. Um, but no, he, he brought up, uh, we had a guest last week talking about um, carbon capture and storage. And the question was whether or not we should ever really look into this research. And we had a great exchange um, over email about this. And I think we're, we're, we're sort of on the same page, but we have slightly different positions, um, which was which was good. You know, you've got to have those discussions. But um, it really was around this issue of whether or not this technology should be pursued at all, um, given it does hand out a bit of an olive leaf to the, you know, the, the coal-fired power plants and so forth. And I agree with that position. I think that is problematic, but I also... Um, as many, you know, long-time listeners of the show would know, I was all for stem cell research and so forth when it was unpopular and look at it now. We're not doing it in the same way. So the, the outcomes can be, the outcomes can be unexpected and I don't believe in shutting down areas of research for political reasons, but, um, you know, that's a, that's a core sort of view, I think, of most scientists, but, but definitely important to keep an eye on where these things are used and how, because uh, I, I agree with Guy on that, that these, these sorts of technologies can be misused. Politically, and we have to keep a sharp, sharp eye on those. Uh, it was just, uh, I'm sorry I, I missed yeah. hearing the guest last week, but carbon capture and storage can also be used for uncoal related things, yeah, particularly absolutely. for dealing with the rest of our industries that are producing CO2 not from coal burning, but from their actual process mm. And, mm. And, and their waste streams. So there's concrete, concrete's a, yep. a great, great example. So there's, there's other possibilities for it, but one does have to ask the question, is it? Yeah, prolonging. Coal. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I mean, the, the, the key there is, you know, I, I find the whole coal industry disgusting. Um, I think it, you know, as Lyndon has pointed out, um, in her new segment, you know, there's, there's a lot there that we need to resolve in as quickly as possible. Um, and, and that, you know, having, having a discussion on carbon capture and storage does not negate that view from me as to what I think of the coal industry, but yeah, there you go. Anyway, um, these are, these are things, you know, we have to have these tough conversations, but, uh, thank you guys for sending in that email. We very much appreciate getting that sort of feedback and it, and it helps us refine what we do. We're going to take a break now for some music folks and we'll be back in a minute with our first guest from La Trobe University. Three, triple.
You are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo here. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us is Professor Brian Smith. He's the head of the School of Molecular Sciences at La Trobe University. Brian, welcome to Triple R. Thanks very much, Shane. Now, first of all, before we get into anything, you're wearing this pin that uh, Dr. Ray and I noticed, and it says you can't beat La Trobe. Do tell. Fairly long story. Um, I guess when... In the 1960s, I believe, when uh, La Trobe University particularly had a social conscience, students decided to march from La Trobe University down to the the, the, the big sticks, down to I think it was Ivanhoe Shopping Centre. Right. And uh, along the way, they uh, they were uh, met by the the constabulary, who then bludgeoned them. Mm. The um, they then I believe then decided to uh, another day decided to walk the other way from. Uh, from Ivanhoe back to La Trobe University, uh, and the constabulary decided not to touch them. Uh, the headlines in the newspapers, obviously, you can't beat La Trobe. Right. Well, it's a good pin to have, I suppose. You know, it takes a while to explain it to people when you're walking down the street, though. Exactly. Now, you work in the area of um, molecular modelling. I mean, give, give us a bit of an idea of what that means overall more broadly, because, I mean, people hear all different types of modelling. We've even talked about some of it so far on the show today. What specifically is molecular modelling? So I guess by its name, you know, modelling molecules. Uh, my particular interest is modelling the interactions between molecules, mm-hmm. so between small molecules that might be drugs, for example, and their targets, which are typically proteins. Um, but that could be you know, drugs with DNA or any sorts of molecular interactions. Mm. What's different between modelling just plain atoms and molecules? I mean, how is that different? I guess molecules are composed of atoms. Mm-hmm. So typically uh, the sorts of uh, you know, models we create are atomistic models. So they do uh, model, uh, they'll calculate the interactions between individual atoms, individual atoms within a drug, with individual atoms in a protein, for example. Now, you, you talk about proteins. We always have this image of these things as these big, ugly, hairy beasts that are, you know, thousands or even more atoms per protein. I mean, how effectively can we model those? It seems like something where every time you check one parameter, there's a there's a hundred more that you have to deal with. Absolutely. So certainly you're right. The, the sorts of systems that we would uh, model, they would be tens of thousands of atoms or hundreds of thousands of atoms. Right. So there are certainly the dimensions are quite large. Um, and we don't do a single calculation. We typically do uh, calculations in a time series. So uh, we're looking at uh, up to, say, a microsecond of simulations. Uh, and those sorts of calculations, they can take a couple of months sometimes okay. on, on some of our high-performance computing mm. hardware. Um, and, and give us an example of, of, you know, one of these these modelling scenarios where something that people might might know, you know, that you've actually managed to model. So I guess uh, some sort of recent examples uh, where we're modelling insulin and its interaction mm-hmm. with the insulin receptor. So this is some work that we do in collaboration, both internationally and with some colleagues at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. And we're interested in how to design new insulin molecules, uh, looking at the particular, the, the individual interactions between the insulin itself and its receptor, trying to improve the interaction, trying to improve the stability of the insulin, trying to uh, improve the activity, whether it's a fast-acting insulin or a slow-acting insulin, and doing all of that based on the models that we create. Yeah. When, when it comes to the, the modelling, 
one of the things I always find fascinating, especially with things like antibiotics and so forth and things like insulin, um, these are all natural compounds generally that we, we learn how to process more of, more efficiently, but we rarely understand how these things actually work. And, and as a result, you know, we're, we're facing this antibiotic problem um, because we don't really create these things. I mean, so when you, when you do your work, it, are we getting closer to that point where we can model them to the point where you could say, okay, we could design one of these, design a new one? We certainly do. Um, we certainly do lots of modelling on natural products and then imagine how we can change those to mm-hmm. better suit the purpose that we want. But we can certainly do so-called de novo design, so starting from the very beginning. So we can, uh, from a, an understanding of the structure of a protein, we can uh, um, determine how we might interact in a positive way uh, and build a model molecule, you know, grow a drug from scratch. And we certainly do those sorts of things as well. Mm. All right. Anyway, unleash the team on you. I just had a question you mentioned before about using high-performance computers. How has this work changed recently? Computers are getting so much bigger and so much faster. How does what you do now compare to how you were doing this five, ten years ago? It's interesting you say five or ten years ago. Um, we've just recently been purchased some... Uh, very uh, inexpensive uh, machines. Um, so I spent, I don't know, $3,000 maybe on some computers um, that use the graphics processors uh, that we now see in uh, sort of the gaming machines that you know, people buy mm. um, high-performance uh, graphics processors because they get a better you know, gaming experience. These sorts of machines, I mean, the last uh, sort of uh, measure we made, they were about six times faster than some of the machines that are up at the National Computing uh, Centre up in Canberra. Right. So we can get extremely good performance out of quite cheap machines. So they are purpose-built. There's not much else they do. They don't do much else, um, but still uh, they do very well. So we're seeing uh, massive improvements in uh, our ability to model just by hoping that the gaming community uh, insists on improving the quality of the games that they actually experience. Yeah, I mean, everyone needs to thank the gaming and pornography industry for the, the <laughs> great great aspects of the internet we have today. But, well, you know, these are the things that lead the, the technology in many regards. Uh, going the, along this line, you, you mentioned earlier you, you, you might simulate a molecule for a microsecond. Well, well, I, I mean, I, that's almost like saying in, in dog years, that's a long time for a molecule because it's plenty of time for the atoms to interact. But what does the computing power allow you to do in terms of scale for time, for how long you simulate things? And has it really changed your scope? Does it, is it, is it just one protein to two proteins or is it one protein to a thousand proteins? Where does the computing power, what, t- how does it really affect what you can do? So yes, um, the typical long simulations we would run would be for about a microsecond or a few, maybe 10 microseconds. Um, there's a there's a different dimension so uh, that we use uh, we're looking at large scale computing as well so we might be thinking about uh, starting off with a database of compounds maybe you know a couple of million compounds and we want to know how does each one of those compounds actually interact with a protein for example and so we can then use the you know, sort of high performance computing split up the job into you know several million parts 
uh, and then you know, ask the question, how does each one of those molecules interact? And each, you know, that, each one of those calculations in themselves might take a few uh, sort of days of real time. So you can imagine that you've got a few million compounds, a few million days. We don't have a million days to wait for a result. So sort of splitting that over large numbers of uh, computers is one way we solve that problem. So if in a lab I wanted to test the activity of a compound or a protein interacting with a compound, I can do it in a, in a large-scale plate reader, but those are thousands of molecules they might get through. If yep. they're really lucky, tens of thousands of molecules, whereas you said you can screen kind of a million. I mean, like, you can, you're at a scale, an order of magnitude higher than the real world. That's right. Okay. The problem, I guess, is that the real world is real, mm-hmm. and we're producing, um, I guess, guesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what we can typically do um, in that scenario is we can typically rank, a, you know, a list. So, if you give, you give us a list of a million molecules, I can give you back another list of a ranked, ordered list, which says the compounds at the top of that list they're worthwhile looking at, you know, spending a bit of time in. The ones on the bottom of the list, you're probably wasting your time even bother, you know, sort of reading at all. Mm. Um, so we can streamline the process in that way. And, and um, Brian, just finally, I mean, when you talk about the, the sort of guess aspect of it in the, in the real world, I mean, you, you're all using quantum mechanical aspects to these modelling now, which, which, I mean, how has that changed the way the answers are coming out? Because it really... You know, brings a whole new range of options into into what the possible outcomes are at any point in the modelling, I assume. So certainly quantum mechanics is particularly useful for certain aspects. Um, so the sorts of modelling we typically do is, uh, is sort of Newtonian mechanics, um, but Newtonian mechanics doesn't tell us how to sort of distribute electrons around molecules. Mm. So we need to understand what's the charge on every atom. So that's a quantum mechanical problem. Mm. So we typically revert back to, if you like, back to quantum mechanics to actually solve that little problem and then apply the answer from that uh, in our sort of the standard Newtonian mechanics. Yeah. Look, it's cool stuff. And uh, I think uh, especially, as you said, with the, the massive changes in computing capabilities, uh, the, the things that we can do now in this area are very exciting. Brian, thanks so much for chatting to us today and uh, good luck with the work. Thanks, Shane. Professor Brian Smith is the head of the School of Molecular Sciences at La Trobe University. Three, triple, ah. uh, Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Triple Arts, Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us now is Dr. Saskia Freytag. She is a postdoctoral researcher at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Saskia, welcome to Triple R. Hey, good morning. Now, you're a statistician. We just confirmed that during yes. the break because we, al- we almost called you a mathematician, which, you know, well. that could be bad. Um, but you have a really interesting story about um, how you got into science. And I, I love it because as a, you know, a lapsed physicist, it involves your father who was a physicist. Tell, tell us a bit about this. because, oh. <laughs> Well, so my dad is a physicist, as you just said, and um, he just loved doing experiments with us when we were um, little and pretty much every um, weekend he would be there and have have an experiment planned and so we would do rockets we would do um, sort of pulley systems at the on from the kitchen ceiling and it was amazing and this really got me into science and um, it also got my brother into science um, but more importantly it really also 
open an avenue for me to start to see more theoretical aspects of mm. science, and that's what got me into math. All right. So he didn't just do the experiments, and he must have. There must have been some explanation. Like, I mean, oh, I've, yeah. I've done that stuff. And my kids like, look at this rocket. It's cool, <laughs> but I didn't go and do the explanation part, which now I feel like a you know, pretty bad father. But, uh, uh, well, no, no, no. You shouldn't feel like a bad father because it's really important to also just do the experiments. And maybe for some kids, it will take away the fun. Yeah. But so he did it really in baby steps. He just sort of brought us closer and closer to um, the theoretical aspects of them, um, and you know. With graph paper, we were sitting. I remember us being on the kitchen floor, uh, working on graph paper and drawing graphs and doing all of this stuff, and it was amazing. So, everyone else in the house was fine with mounting things on the kitchen ceiling for physics, because <laughs> this is the part that has me really jealous. Because I'd love to do that at home, but I don't. I don't see that going over well with the other half of the family. Uh, that's yeah. In your yeah. case, that's probably true. Um, yeah. So. I think uh, we pulled several friends up with a pulley system to the <laughs> ceiling in our in our house, and Mum was okay with that. So she was she just made sure that the harnesses were safe and secure. Right, yeah, yeah. What does your mum What does your mum do? Did so my mum is not a scientist, and yeah. I think that's really important to yeah. remember that you don't need scientist parents to get into science. She was all for that. It's just really really supportive. Um, she's she's not a scientist. She's actually a social worker. Yeah. So I didn't marry a scientist. I thought it was bad enough having one in the house. But um, <laughs> I mean, it's such a great story to me because I think it, it it brings in that idea of how curious kids are, and that I always think we beat it out of kids in a sense. We don't we don't put it into kids. Kids are born curious about the world, and you know you either encourage that or you or you don't. And anyway, um, now but but mathematics mathematicians and, and maths and one question i always ask people who are mathematicians or statistics and they usually say no is were you good at maths when you're at school no, no. <laughs> <Why is that? laughs> they all have the same answer i think you know these people who just spend their whole life doing maths and but in school they weren't necessarily that good at maths well so i think when i say no i think it's very sort of subjective i wasn't good at everything and mm-hmm. that's probably pretty common i was good at some areas of math and bad at other areas of math. Um, and I guess, yeah, we always give kids the impression that you have to be good at everything that yeah. comes with math. And as soon as you fail one thing, we tell them, well, it's probably not for you. Maybe you should mm. go do English or maybe something else is better for you. But we wouldn't do that when it comes to English. When you fail one essay, we wouldn't tell you, hey, that's it for you. Yeah, You'll never <laughs> be able to do English. That would be crazy. Yeah, you couldn't spell something. You know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's not going to work. Um, so tell us a bit about your work now because you're a statistician. So you, you work on the, the, I mean, the, the big data that's collected down at WeHi. Um, what, I mean, what's your day like? What sort of stuff do you do? So actually I don't work on data that is collected at WeHi, which is oh, actually right. really interesting. I work on um, stuff that is collected by other researchers and then is made available um, publicly and then I go and get all these this, this data off pretty much the internet mm-hmm. and start analyzing it. And in particular, I look at gene expression in the post-mortem brain. So that's okay. really how our genes are expressed in different areas of the brain during different time periods from fetuses to 
um, children to really old people. And given we have a whole range of different ailments that affect our brain at different ages, I mean, what what do you see there that must be quite different? Yeah, it's really interesting that it's actually the gene expression is much more dependent on our age than on where I look spatially in the brain and that's what we've been seeing all the time really. Tango, let's just go over that in a bit more detail. So you see more difference between people of different ages than when you look in different sections of the human brain. Yes. And Why is that? Well, because development is really, really crucial and there is actually a lot of change within development from when we are when we are actually still in the room to when we are really old. And it's actually really interesting to see that older individuals kind of resemble um, fetuses more than they have. They have more in common with them than they have in common with um, children, for example. So, so what sort of commonalities do you see between... Well, we see that the networks between the genes, so how the genes interact with each other, are actually um, more similar that structure is more similar in older people to younger people than, well, not younger people, like really fetuses, to um, sort of children. Hmm. Now, give us an idea of how the, the sort of mathematical aspect of this works, because you, as you say, uh, you correct me, you get the data from other sources all, all around the world, and there's some great databases available in different parts of the world. How do you feed all of that? I mean, this must be an intense amount of data. How do you feed it in, and how do you go about correlating these various questions? So yeah, it's it's an intense amount of data and actually we're collecting several different data sets. So what we have to first do is we have to clean the data up and make it actually comparable across these really different data sets because they're all affected by different sort of technical noise and we don't really want to measure the technical noise, we want to measure the biology that is underlying there. So that's our first step. And um, then we have to, then we, we're correlating um, the gene expressions of different genes and that is actually um, a relatively simple step from the statistical perspective but what comes after that is how to visualize it and make biologists actually engage with it and understand what is happening there and make that useful to them and that's where sort of our real creativity comes into play. So, so what do you mean by visualize? I mean, what do, you, what do you have to do to, as a statistician? I mean, how do you make, I know Drew's there and he's doing some amazing videos, maybe that's, that's the, the pathway, but how do you get the biologist to see what you see sort of in a native language of stats, you know, statistics? How do you get them to do that? So, well, I've actually created a web application where um, biologists can come in and um, type in sort of their favorite genes and see how they're correlating in the human brain over time and how that changes. Mm. Um, so that's just visualizing it with sort of colors and um, graphs and all that stuff that is that biologists use every day, but that doesn't really involve numbers. Mm. And mm. that's really helpful to them. Yeah. So you're working at WeHi, you're working mainly with biologists. Are there many other statisticians that work at WeHi? So yes, there are actually. We have an entire division of um, statisticians and mathematicians and also computer scientists that um, work with the biologists and help to really answer their research questions. And we also have integrated um statisticians that work in every div- pretty much every division at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute to really help research go along.
and and they sort of help with the cross-language communication. I imagine statisticians and biologists and computer scientists would have different ways of talking. Do you need sort of a, a babblefish to help you guys work together? I, I sometimes wish we had a babblefish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of be honest there. Um, and I... I do go on about this a little bit at my institute. I always say, well, as a statistician coming into a institute doing biological research, we have to pick up an awful lot of biology because a lot of us haven't done biology since sort of grade 10. But, you, but that's not necessarily what I see when I talk to my biologists. They haven't done as much statistics and as much math. Mm. And that's probably because they haven't done math since grade 10. And that's yeah. pretty awful. Mm. Now, uh, Saskia, before we let you go, I uh, thought you might want to just comment a little on the Choose Math program because that's how we found you through this this great program that seems to be out there to promote um, maths to, to to kids in schools and so forth. I mean, just give us a bit on that. Yeah, so Choose Math is a really great program where we have um, 12 ambassadors um, that are trying to get mainly girls but really also boys to stay interested in maths, keep on doing math in year 12, and possibly go on to university because math gives you great job opportunities everywhere mm. and just such such breadth of and width of of different topics that you can later on work in. Mm. And I think uh, for those out there thinking about maths as a career, it is a way that I suspect in the next 10 years you can earn a shitload of money. Yes, <laughs> so. not just money, but also you can work in really, really cool fields. Yeah, I mean, it's just everywhere at the moment. So if I want to find out more about Choose Maths, where do I go? Um, Just Google, Google Choose, Choose Maths. Maths. Okay. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah. And we're going to have a few guests over the coming weeks from that program. So, um, Tuska, thanks so much for, for coming in. Uh, I, I suspect everyone has the same love that I do in the studio for long division. Um, <laughs> do, do you do it sometimes just in spare time, just a bit of long division, just to keep yourself sharp? To be honest, no. See, no one knows how to do long division these days. It's a lost art. Thanks so much for chatting to us, and, and good luck with all the great work going on there at WeHo. Thank you so much. Dr. Saskia Freitag is a postdoc researcher at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Three, triple, ah. And now you are listening to Triple R. We've got a little bit, uh, geez, I really emphasized the R there, didn't I? Sounded like a... <laughs> <laughs> from the western suburbs, which I am. Uh, we got a little bit more news for you. Lyndon, what have you got for us? Well, you remember last time that I came on the show, I love talking about old data, old yeah. weather information. That's my jam. But mm. today I also want to talk about some old, cold algae data. Well. So I don't know if anybody saw this in the news this week. Mm. Uh, some researchers, a researcher from the Royal Society, or no, the Natural History Museum in London, and a researcher mm. from New Zealand have done some DNA testing. They've compared... Modern algae, blue-green algae data from Antarctica with blue-green algae that was sampled from Scott's expedition down in Antarctica in oh. the early 1900s. Wow. So Scott of the Antarctic, he went down in the Discovery, mm. 2000, no, no, 1902 to 1904, and he came back with a bunch of blue-green algae mats. And this is the first time that they've been able to look over 100 years to see how the DNA has changed. They expected, these researchers expected that because Antarctica has such extreme variability over the year, melts in the summer mm -hmm. and then freezes mm -hmm. the crap out of itself in the wintertime, they assumed that the algae DNA would be really different. But actually what they found was that it was pretty much the same. Right. Like the percentages changed a little bit, but the DNA, the taxa were very, very similar. 
and they were really surprised by that result. Uh, it kind of suggests that possibly the algae that live down in Antarctica are super tough. Yeah, I was going to say, does that mean this? it's sort of adapted to be yeah. so good at different extremes? Exactly. Um, that's probably the sort of algae that will hang around for a long time. Well, that's it. That's exactly what they're looking for. Uh, Antarctica's climate is expected to change a fair bit or hasn't started changing yet, mm. but you know, it's this result suggests that it might be a little bit more resilient to climate change in the future because all the weak kind of blue-green algae has been Killed off, Killed and off, yeah. only the super tough algae has survived, which is which is a really important important finding. It's interesting stuff. Mm. Yeah, that's very. It's, it is the exact opposite of what you'd expect. Exactly, in a sense, yeah. Dr. Lauren. Um, well, I have a um, news story about a study published in Nature this week that is looking at the origin of deadly viruses in animals. And it, um, the study really makes me want to go and read The Hot Zone again. I don't know if any of oh, you yeah, guys have read that, that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah fantastic book. Um, so the Marburg, Marburg Ebola and severe acute respiratory syndrome have all been linked to bats. And some scientists are of the opinion that there's something about bats that makes them more likely to harbor viruses that are dangerous to humans. But there's also this other sort of camp of scientists that argue that um, the reason why we think this is just because bats are really well studied and that there's just tons of different, there's lots of different types of bats and um, we have a lot of research in this area which kind of biases those results. And so these, uh, this study was actually done by the uh, bat skeptics. Um, and <laughs> it's interesting that such a group exists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Are they skeptical of the existence of bats? Oh, no, so they're ske- skeptical of um, the idea that bats sort of harbor these, mo- like, are the animals that harbour more of the dangerous viruses. Oh, so it's the group formerly known as the Friends of the Bats Association. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so they were the ones behind the study. So they actually um, did concede and they found that bats are indeed more likely to carry unknown pathogens that can wreak havoc on humans. So they started out by trying to answer the question, you know, where should where should scientists concentrate um, efforts to find these unknown viruses that potentially could cause the next um, epidemic? And so they really, they looked at... Um, these researchers collected information on all the viruses known to infect mammals, which is 586 in total, which is wow. a shockingly large number of viruses. Um, and then they sort of looked down at the, the 188 viruses that we know that can cross over from, from animals um, into humans. And so even after accounting for factors that would likely increase the viral load, such as how closely all these animals, you know, are related to humans or how much of the habitat overlays with cities, um, bats still host, host a significantly larger proportion of these viruses than other mammals. And so they estimate that there are 17 of these viruses that can translate from, from mammals to, to humans that are um, in bats versus 10 um, uh, viruses in rodent and primate species. And so um, what we need next um, is really more real-world data showing how exactly these infectious diseases can you know, tra- mm. translate from mm. animals to humans. Um, and also um, some more research looking into why bats are unique in this way. So why do bats have more of these viruses than other mammals? Yeah, I'm wondering about how much is... I mean, so it's the potential to cross over, but then the the bat has to be in contact with people. And I mean, mm. yeah, when I was in Cannes, somebody told me, yeah, uh, you know, when you're walking underneath all those mango trees, if you look up, close your mouth, because that's a dumb way to get disease from a bat when it poops. But so, so I mean, you, you do wonder about there's a lot of other animals that are in much higher that might transfer a lower percentage, but are in a much higher contact mm. with yeah, people. So exactly. I, I wonder about how that comes into play. In, well, I'm sorry, my, my head's still in thinking up of a new tagline for the uh, bat skeptics, which would be, yeah. would be something like, like <laughs> bats, a friend or a virus for life. Oh, yeah, I mean, just, just yeah. it sells it both ways. Yeah. Right? Um, but there, there's always that um, that image we've always had about, especially monkeys and so forth, as yeah, being the, that, the, 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 the source yeah. of um, mm. the source of these things. But 
but perhaps uh, so if you take you said there were 10 the primates and others had uh, are they yeah. origi- originating there or are they originating from the vets as well i mean that's well so that's that's what we don't know and that was kind of you know so that the future section of this study was kind of like all right like we know this but that's not saying that we all need to freak out and panic that mm. we you know get rid of bats or anything and i think yeah that's something that did, did the bats get it from something else like so they're sort of the carriers but where where and why and how how do they get it yeah um, and Adam West died there last week. It's all, the whole bat thing is really in my head. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're pretty much out of time. Ray, you and I, we, we will hold uh, our news no, until... You can't finish better than bats. No, <laughs> you know, and you and... The, sorry, I'm finishing with you and the image walking under a mango tree with your mouth open, <laughs> facing yeah. up. And, oh, uh, wow, look at that. Yeah, oh, uh, what's that? Oh, that, that tastes uh, a bit weird. Yeah. Um, and by the way, folks, next coming up is a, is a food show. So. <laughs> <laughs> great anyway, segue. Yeah, it's a great segue. Um, we're going to hand over to the team from Eat It in just a moment, folks. I can see Matt Stebman over there. Yep, he's waving to me. He's ready. And I, I heard Cam come in earlier. I didn't see him, but I heard him. He's, you know, his dulcet tones tend to carry through the walls. Thank you so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go today. Lyndon, thanks and uh, great having you in, in the studio. Uh, Laura, Ray, thanks so much. Good to see you all. Cheers. I'm Dr. Shane. We will chat again next week, folks. Please have a great Sunday. It is bloody cold out there. Um, stay warm and remember science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.